Hello and welcome to Primary Sources. This is a spin-off podcast from the Doctor Who show where we take what people were saying about Doctor Who in the 80s and 90s and we riff on it. The conversation might stick closely to the primary source or it might go off on its own tangent. Who knows? For this episode, I'm joined again by my Doctor Who show co-host, Dave. Hello, Dave. Hello, Rob. Let's rip into it. Let's go. All right. This first letter. Oh, and I should tell you, we are reading from Doctor Who magazine, April 19... 83. Wow. Okay. Let's go. This one is called No Complaints. Why is it that when browsing through the letters in my Doctor Who Monthly, I find all people can do is complain about the Doctor, Nyssa, and Tegan? Why did Anna Hankey call Nyssa a wet drop? She's a very good actress. And why did Graham Bassett say that about Tegan having a Kermit the Frog smile? Kermit the Frog is green and has a big mouth. And anyway, Tegan and him don't resemble in the least. Next, he'll be saying Peter Davison looks like Miss Piggy. By the way, your mag is ace. Nearly as good as the program itself. No wonder with John Nathan Turner as an advisor. He's my hero. Next to Jimi Hendrix. It's the highlight of the month going into the news agents in the nearby village and picking up my Doctor Who monthly. Long live Doctor Who and his assistants, and John Nathan Turner. From Katrina Jones and Fiona Harvey, age 14, Sundrum by Air, Scotland. Well, there was a lot in a little there. <laughs> Jimmy let Hendrix! Me, let me say, no, I'm going to Kermit the Frog. Okay. Um, because Tegan as Kermit the Frog is a, a, an utterly bizarre concept that I just cannot imagine. You know, mild-mannered Kermit the Frog and the mouth on legs being compared to each other. I... I just don't understand, but but now I've sort of got this image of Adric as Robin the Frog, sort of you know sitting in the TARDIS having an argument with the Doctor, and sort of halfway up the stair is yeah. I just I just that's that's just a bizarre bizarre comment. Davey Davo was Miss Piggy. No, 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 absolutely not. Um, wasn't it funny? Can I jump in? Wasn't it funny though? That didn't Patrick Troughton say that Colin Baker was Miss Piggy? Oh God, I don't know about that. I'm I not, think I'm, he did. Oh, I'm not going there. Not going there. Um. Interesting to hear that the letters page and the tone of DWM is full of lots of complaints because the criticism of DWM certainly these days, um, certainly in the era of the new series, and frankly even back into the latter part of the 80s, was always that it was just too positive and that certainly their reviews were always um, cloyingly positive. They, you know, they never give lower than an 8 um, and that the letters are not censored, but there's definitely an editorial skew towards popular things that the BBC production team, whether that's John Nathan Turner or Russell T Davies or, or, or Peter Moffat or the professional brand managers that they have now, are, are going to like. So it was kind of refreshing to think of DWM as being much more of a grassroots fanzine where people are just kind of bitching and whining. And it makes me more interested in the contents of the magazine at that point because I, I I get why if you've got a relationship with the production team you don't want to put them offside but if it means you have to be overly nice or overly sanitized is perhaps the word that to me isn't a satisfactory outcome in, in the same way that podcasts that see nothing wrong ever with any episode or moment of Doctor Who. I mean, if that's their opinion, sure, but it it does get a little bit dull. You know, you want a little bit of grit and a little bit of 
gossip and and the like. And um, do you find those kinds of um, people though, podcasts or people on Twitter perhaps, who are always oh no, this is great, this is great, this person's great, this companion's great, blah, 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 blah. They can't be real because people just aren't like that in real life. Do you think they're a reaction to the eternally negative people who are just negative about every single thing? And again, I don't think those people can be real either because surely they must like something. I, I think I think there are different types. I certainly know people that are just so grateful and so happy the Doctor Who is back that that all Doctor Who is good, and and you know there there is some that's ten, 10 out of ten. There's some that maybe you know is eight out of ten, but there's very rarely bad Doctor Who. They just love it being back. I, I also think though that a lot of fandom can kind of be defined by what I call hiatus derangement syndrome. <laughs> that would be HDR, is it? HDR? Something like that. Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, which is just this sort of ongoing fan reaction to the hiatus, but well, to both of them really, to to the cancellation of the series in the Colin era and then the, the big cancellation post-McCoy. Mm. And there's a feeling that manifests itself in a couple of ways, and probably the main way is nobody wants the show to, lose, to, to go off air again. Mm. Um, no matter how disappointed you are with the show, you want it to continue. And there's this real feeling that in the 80s, right through the Colin and McCoy years, frankly, fandom didn't get behind the show and was always complaining and was always negative. And, and, and the BBC must certainly have just thought, gee, we're nothing, these Doctor Who fans are always ringing up complaining about something or Chris Chibnall's <laughs> going on our TV show telling us how bad the latest episode was. So if the fans don't like it, you know, why should we bother? And yeah. I think a lot of fans are really, really scared about emulating that. And... and, and, and I also think that fans are always terrified that another hiatus is just around the corner, and so that's why others are always wanting Doctor Who to be perfect. When a new episode's on, they, they see it through the prism of, if this episode isn't perfect, then all you know all you need is that moment where Michael Grade switched on Warriors of the Deep, saw the murker, and said, this show is done. You know, nobody wants that moment to happen again, which is all ridiculous, but I, I think the scars of the hiatus do run pretty deep in the way that fans react to it all yeah well it did take a while to come back i've got to say i'm probably in the minority i'd be quite happy if you know after this next series jody starts to regenerate and they say look that's it for doctor who for now and we it just goes away for three four five years six years you know and we do other creative things we we read books we you know make video games or something i don't know uh big finish continues to make audios i'd be very happy with that uh but i know i'm in the minority there yeah, I certainly would go on living my life if there wasn't a new series of Doctor Who for three or four years. There's there's so much good television now between Netflix and Disney and Amazon and all the, all the existing networks. You know, there is more television now that I want to watch than I can physically watch whilst oh, yeah. being gainfully employed and living a human existence. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I I do know people who um, are no longer gainfully employed or who have retired or who just would rather watch TV all day. I know somebody who watched every episode of Star Trek from the original series through to the end of Enterprise in about five months. Ooh, wow. Which means they were literally waking up watching Star Trek and going to bed. Yeah. Let's assume that we're not doing that. Um, there is not enough... There is more than enough TV to watch. So <laughs> so the point is I don't need Doctor Who. But, but I wouldn't be... I think that it's very easy to be philosophical about that when there's lots of Doctor Who. And mm. if we're actually told there's going to be no Doctor Who for four or five years, I, th- I think it wouldn't be as as easy as we perhaps pretend it would be or perhaps think it would be? 
Oh, I don't know. We're having a year off from it at the moment. I'm I'm not missing it. And if there was if there was this implicit kind of promise, I don't know how this would happen, but if there's this implicit promise that yeah, it's going away, but when it comes back, it's going to be on Netflix or it's going to be made in a different way or it's going to be a lot better. I'd kind of see that as a good trade-off. It's very very hypothetical. It is. It, it is. is. <laughs> Shall we have another letter? Let's do another one. All right. This one is called More Monsters. I am a 14-year-old Doctor Who fan who has watched the program since 1971-72. Isn't that interesting? Because this is the early 80s, so a 14-year-old was watching back in 71-72. What made me watch it at that age? I'll tell you. I watched it because the show introduced another kind of monster or alien each story. Such as these good examples. Claws of Axos, Demons, and Sea Devils. These creatures amazed me. And so, I kept on watching right up until 1976. I stopped there because Doctor Who lost its superb early 70s touch. Okay, I watched one or two after that, but the story still unimpressed me. Doctor Who was terrible. I started to watch Doctor Who again with the five faces of Doctor Who appearing on BBC Two. That was great. This gave me the impression that Doctor Who at last had got on its feet again. So I watched Peter Davison's role as the Doctor. I watched all of the last season's stories and oh, I was wrong. The program got worse. Except for the Cybermen adventure, which wasn't bad. Bring back the Daleks, Axons, Demons, Ice Warriors, Mechanoids and especially the Drashigs. More Monsters. That's from Stephen Young, Burton on Trent. Stephen is utterly, utterly, utterly correct. And <laughs> if I, I, I could have written that letter at if I was 14 in 1983. Yeah. Um, or, or, or indeed... Uh, let, let, well, when I was 14 in 1994, we were getting into the new adventures, um, which I've said before I'm a big fan of. But again, there was a level of excitement when they were announcing new titles and what was coming out when you saw, oh, this one they're going to bring back the Ice Warriors. This mm. one they're going to bring back the Cybermen. This one they're bringing back the Silurians. Uh, there, there was a sense of, wow, this is going to be really, really exciting because there's an old monster coming back. Or even when Gareth Roberts invented the Shalonians in The Highest Science. Like, like that was a kind of a big deal because this was a monster that was new to this era. Mm. Um, somebody who absolutely knew this was Robert Holmes um, and indeed um, Philip Hinchcliffe. And you, you look at the way that Robert Holmes does his stories, even when he's more interested in writing about people, mm. he still knows that the kids need a monster. So the Ribos operation is about a couple of crooks and a kind of insane ex-dictator, but there's a Shrivenzal in there for a couple of cool cliffhangers. Yeah. Uh, the Challenge of Wang Chiang, classic example. That's not about any monsters, it's about people. But there's a giant rat that gets to attack the companion, and, and again, is good for a couple of cliffhangers. Robert Holmes knew that you needed the monsters for the, for the kids watching, and, and I think he's absolutely right. I mean, this is the period in, in fandom where the, the Troughton era, and particularly season five, was kind of held up possibly as much, if not more, than we would hold up, say, season 13 of the Hinchcliffe era now. You know, that classic monster season mm. with... with um, I mean, Evil of the Daleks sort of is the lead into it from season four, but Evil, Tomb, the Abominable Sermon, the Web of Fear, Fury from the Deep, Wheel in Space, like, you know, just uh, the Ice Warriors, you know, all of these monsters were seen as, yeah, that's golden Doctor Who. And I do think that for all of his skills as a producer, that's a trick that John Nathan Turner missed. And certainly his script editors 
I think, missed. I think there are a few 80s stories that could have done with a monster. And Cartmel, I think, got it because the Curse of Fenric doesn't need the Hamavors, but they're there because you want a cool 80s monster. The Cheetah People in Survival are a cool 80s monster. Maybe not as well realised as um, I like to pretend they are, but, but you know, <laughs> they're, they're there. The Tetraps. For, for all the flack that Time and the Rani, I think, rightfully gets at the moment, the Tetraps were a big, big deal in 1987-88 when it was shown here. That was seen by a lot of people as being a highlight of the era. And, and you know, there's always that scrambling for what is the classic monster of those 80s eras, you know. Is it Sill for the Colin Baker era? Is Sill really a monster? If, if not, what? You know, what? what's the monster of the Davison era? Is it the magma creature from Clay Caves of Androzani? Um, is it the snake from the, the from, from Kinder and Snake Dance? You know, they, they lack these, and at least the McCoy era has the Hamavors and the Tetraps and, and, and the Cheetah People and all the rest of that. Monsters. I, 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 could, I could talk on and on and on about monsters, but uh, that letter is just totally, totally correct. <laughs> Well, I was going to say, this chap, Stephen, he's just seen Davos' first series. Let's see if we can work this out. Castrovalva, there's not really monster in that. It's just no. people, really. Uh, Fort of Doomsday, uh, you got, what, they're Urbankans. They look like big frogs. They're not really interesting. No, they're, they're, not, they're not monsters, are they? No, well, no, they're not monsters in the traditional sense. No, they're just aliens, really. And, and two of them turn into people at the end of episode one. Yeah. <laughs> Much less makeup to do when you do that. Uh, what have we got after that? Kinder. Uh, yeah, Kinder and the Visitation. So it's Kinder, uh, Big Snake, you've mentioned that. Big big Snake for three minutes at the end. Yeah, true. Uh, so that's not much. Uh, visitation. Well, visitation's not bad. Pteroleptals might be a Davo yeah. monster, maybe. Pteroleptals probably do, do, do deserve to be uh, considered for the, the Davison monster. I think that's a pretty good call. Yeah, and uh, the the android's quite cool as well, although it's not living. Yep. Uh, where do we go after that? Earthrock? No, oh, Black Black Orchid, which doesn't have a monster. Black Orchid, no monster. Um, Earthshock. Earthshock, which this chap Stephen quite liked. And, and and was for a long time seen as, you know, the highlight certainly of that season, if not the Davis Nero, and I, I think probably still stands up in my view as being the highlight of the, the season. Yeah, true. And uh, Time Flight. Time flight, which had the plasmatons, yeah, which are probably mm. not going to be considered as a classic Davo monster. No, so it is a pretty hit and miss series that this chap had watched, and then obviously decided he didn't like Doctor Who anymore, but wrote to yeah. the magazine about it. And and you can imagine Castrovalva and Kinder both lending themselves to, you know, a monster living in the jungle. You know, the forest outside mm. Castrovalva, maybe an extra obstacle for Nyssa and Tegan to get the Doctor to Castrovalva is, is you know, a Castrovalvan wood beast or yeah. something like that. Um, there's absolutely no reason why you couldn't have something in the landscape of Divaloka that was, was a monster. You know, maybe it's a manifestation of the evil of the Mara made into a Divalokan wood beast. I, I don't know. Um <laughs> I could imagine other production teams looking for that, though, and putting them in, and I think it is a miss that they don't do it. I agree with the letter. All right. Well, let's have a third and final letter. This one's called Off Target. I cannot help feeling that Target let a lot of their readers down when they announced their list of novels for 1983, Doctor Who's 20th anniversary year. I know that I, for one, was certainly disappointed. 
instead of publishing some old classics such as Inferno, Ambassadors of Death, Macra Terror, The Invasion, etc., which I think would have made an ideal tribute to the program's excellent 20 years, they informed us that they were reprinting with new covers books like The Abominable Snowmen, Pyramids of Mars, and The Planet of Evil, all of which do not need reprinting and are perfectly acceptable as they are. I also find it utterly baffling that they should also want to start writing up the Peter Davison books so early, example Castrovalva, Fort to Doomsday, and Time Flight. Excellent stories, though they are. I, for one, can't stand reading a book when I know the plot and what's going to happen next, especially when the real program was only shown as recently as a year earlier. So for goodness sake, Target, why don't you buck your ideas up? Let's see some of those golden oldies you're always talking about. You have no excuse for not commissioning someone to write them, as the excellent Doctor Who archive so ably shows. That's from James McPhilbin, Norwich, Norfolk. Well, let me say that given this is written in 1983, I'm very grateful that all of those novels that he mentioned being re-released were re-released because I'm pretty sure they're the copies that my dad bought at uh, Minotaur in, in Melbourne that, that, that year and yeah. they're the copies that I have on my shelf right now. So I'm, I'm very grateful that we had those copies there. We might have missed out on some of those. Yeah. Um, it's fascinating to think of the targets as being a very, very incomplete set of books because every every title that you rattles off there invasion ambassadors inferno etc we all know came you know within a few years i think they were all out by the end of the 80s so it actually wasn't that far away but they they weren't to know that at the time um which is an interesting sort of perspective but it highlights once again how important to the uk market particularly and to an extent the australian market as well but we had repeats that the UK didn't. Mm. But just, just that importance of a novel is the only way to see a story from the past. And you don't need to get a novel of Time Flight as much because Time Flight's fairly fresh in the memory. Whereas The Ambassadors of Death probably hasn't been broadcast at this stage in maybe even 13 years yeah. since they broadcast Inferno and Ambassadors and probably more since they broadcast the invasion now we we got repeats of ambassadors in inferno you know every couple of years through the 80s so uh we weren't that desperate but yeah just a really different perspective but again he's probably wrong because there are probably people who don't don't have a copy of pyramids or a bomb snowman who are like no what this is my only way of getting it so look look probably no no fresh thoughts on the target novels we know they're great we know why people wanted them and this just highlights what it must have been like living in the middle of it but there is always some excitement as a Doctor Who fan of waiting to know what's coming next mm. and I can remember being 10, 11, 12 and waiting for the latest issue of Sonic Screwdriver to arrive and hoping there was going to be a list of what VHS stories were going to be coming out over the next six months and then it became what news was there of what DVDs were going to be coming out in the next few months I mentioned earlier you know the excitement you'd get when you'd get a list of new titles and authors and subjects for the Virgin range. That was like getting new new series. And it is like the excitement we get now where they have a new series and you start to get the titles and the authors. And sometimes, you know, this is an historical and James I is in it, or this is an adventure in the future, or we're not got any spoilers, but uh, the master's coming back. You know, those, <laughs> those sort of things. And they... They excite us now, and I, I, I do think that I could imagine being a fan in 1983 and looking at the list of what stories were going to be published and, and wanting the classics. 
And look, they got them a few years later by 87, 88, 89. They were banging out, you know, Hartnells, especially around that era. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, there was a certain sense right through those early times in the Target novels of getting the latest season out. I mean, the, the Key to Time series is a classic example. Um, five of those came out sort of within a year of them. I think all of them written by Terence Dix, in fact. Uh, no, Ian, Ian Martha wrote The Rivals Operation, I think. Yeah, true. Um, yeah, but, but you know, they, they were doing that for season 16, season 17, and, and certainly the Dave era were coming out. And from a marketing point of view, it makes a lot of sense, you know. Hey, if you're enjoying the Peter Davison era, come and spend some money on a book with Peter Davison's photo on a very boring photo cover. I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, Dave, I think we've hit our time for this episode, so all that's left for me to do is say thank you for joining me again. These are such fun to do. There's so many other things that I could have said and so many tangents we could have gone off, but no, we've hit the time. Uh, we'll have a guest next month, and I'll be back in a couple of months. All right, then. Until then, I've been Rob. And I've been Dave. <laughs> See you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.